Hi, everyone. I just wanted to let you know at the top of the show that we have a live episode coming out next week. It's on Wednesday, the 1st of July. It's 5 p.m. UK time. That's midday Eastern. We'll be going live as part of London Climate Week. We're going to be joined by the film producer, Richard Curtis. It's going to be a huge amount of fun. Please go to our website, globaloptimism.com, and you can find a place there to register. Please join us. Oh, and also, by the way, Christiana is back this week. We're thrilled to have her back. But sadly, her microphone is still on holiday. Here's the episode. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres and I'm back in case you had forgotten me. Hooray! Cristiana's back! Fantastic! <laughs> Yahoo! And I'm Paul Dickinson. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we are talking about the return of stakeholder capitalism, and we are speaking to Paul Polman, chair of the International Chamber of Commerce and former chief executive of Unilever. Thanks for being here. So, Christiana, it has been weeks in your absence. We have pined in your absence. We've scurried around and tried to find friends who would fill your shoes, and they've been brilliant, but it's not been like having you. Welcome back. It's lovely to have you here. Well, yes. thank you very much, but I know that you've been doing a brilliant job, and you've had really, really fun people on, so... We've tried, Christiana. You know, I did discover something very disappointing, though, because um, I said to Christiana, welcome back. And she said, where have I been? It's only you and Paul who've stopped calling me. I've actually been working this entire time. So have you not had a break? Well, I have not had a break, oh. but I do have a Costa Rica-related announcement since I know that you've been you, missing You amaze those. me. Right. Where? Right. Are you ready? Puerto Rico? Where, where is this? Oh, Dickinson, you're in such trouble. <laughs> Two weeks with you gone and he's forgotten where you're from. Uh, yeah, no, Costa Rica, of course. It's a very important country. That was very nice. It's it, wonderful. They they abolished the uh, Navy. Or, no, sorry. For those listeners, Christiana's eyebrows are at a very severe angle. Very severe. Right. So here's my Costa Rica announcement. You will note that it has a different characteristic to my previous announcements. About it already sounds country. serious. It does. It's, it's, a, it's a much more serious. It's a, the profile, Christiana's not looking at the camera. She's looking sideways as if she was making a sort of speech to an enormous crowd outside of the window. But, sorry. <laughs> right. I have spent the three weeks that I was supposed to be on vacay, I have spent, among other things, on a campaign in Costa Rica to ensure that we're going to pass a law that prohibits the exploration and exploitation of oil and gas. Wow, that's big. Now, the problem with that, I mean, obviously the law has to pass, but the problem is that there are some who would want to put obstacles to the passing of that law because they are convinced that oil could be a very interesting source of fresh capital for the country. Has oil been found? So you can imagine, it. no. Oh, okay. We don't this even is know. Theoretical we, oil. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. You want to be a little this bit careful is, because we were talking a while ago, it's minus $40 a barrel. So if you find a lot, that can exactly. be country. So. It could be very expensive. Well, so you can imagine that I have um, been doing everything that I can to support those who are arguing for passing a law to prohibit exploration of oil and gas forever. 
That's a long time, actually. <laughs> forever, forever. Just like we outlawed the army forever. Has any country got such a law at the moment? Well, this is where Costa Rica is so unique and wonderful, guys. Ah, uh, we're back to but, the positive but, Costa Rica. But, but, but. <laughs> we, will, we will come back to that. Costa Rica, will... Costa Rica. <laughs> thank you, thank you. That's the new hymn. Uh, we will sing hallelujah when the law is passed, okay? okay. In the meantime, lots of work to do. So just to be, just to be completely clear, Christiana gets like, was it three weeks off, which, which she only takes two, and then she passes a law to ban oil and gas exploration in Costa Rica forever, or at least she nearly gets the law passed or tries to. That's what I call a holiday Christiana Figuera style. And that is yes. why yeah, yeah. you are our great leader and I admire you endlessly. Yeah, well, it's actually not very responsible to do that with your vacation. But anyway. Um, <laughs> it is actually the most are. responsible thing you can possibly do. Maybe not responsible for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But we should encourage our listeners, if you have the opportunity during your summer holidays to prevent a country from ever exploring oil and gas again, <laughs> Do do you take it? We will celebrate you on this podcast. Do write yes, in and yes, let us yes, know. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Top top law passed. Top banning of ever, anything forever. You know, if you've if you, for example, have gone, you know, just to Brighton uh, for the weekend and stopped plastic being used for all time, or for example, if you've gone to Greece, you know, for for two weeks or or, or, or uh, somewhere not too far, ideally on a train. And uh, yeah, it's just essentially caused the end of something that pollutes our environment for all time, liberating Earth. Then let us know uh, on any of the social media channels. <laughs> That's a very attractive invitation there, Paul. I like that. Right. So we have Christiana back. We need to focus and be to business. So let me dive in and just give a few setup comments in terms of where we're going to go today. Um, because this week, we are actually going to be talking about the options facing businesses as they look at their options for building back better through the response to COVID-19. So we've talked a lot about national governments and the fiscal stimulus they're putting in place. But today we're going to look at it from the perspective of business. Now, of course, this has been a hugely turbulent time to run a business. But one thing that's emerged through this is the return of the idea of stakeholder capitalism. So just a quick history lesson on that. This is the idea that business should respond to the needs of all stakeholders, not just their shareholders, but employees to society at large, to their supply chain, to everybody they engage with as equal stakeholders in their future. And it was popular in the 50s and 60s. But recently, and particularly through COVID, but also driven by alarm due to widening inequality and the climate crisis, there seems to have been a realisation that only serving the needs of shareholders is not working out very well for society. So this is the broad area we're going to get into, and we'll dive into some specifics. But Paul, you have been a deep thinker on this issue for decades. You started CDP to represent investors and engage with businesses and get them to provide the kinds of data that would be necessary for this type of stakeholder capitalism. How do you respond to that sort of statement as to where we are? Uh, and Paul, you wrote a book entitled Beautiful Corporations. Oh, well, what a nice setup. And thank you. I mean, the first thing is I have a little bit of a problem with the word capitalism and I, I just I just because it's just one of those words that people mm. kind of associate with the right wing and and you know evil capitalists or whatever but I guess you know we're all kind of use a bank account and we all you know kind of go to the shops and we all kind of buy food mostly from private sector organizations so we're all kind of in capital even if we're very left-wing kind of people or or middle of the road or you know so but but the stakeholder society maybe you might call it that nice um Look, I, I'm I'm absolutely. Uh, I actually had a, like a, a conversion. I wanted to be a politician when I was a kid, and I, and I was looking at these annual reports from big corporations when I was 
24 in 1988. I was looking at these annual reports from big corporations. I thought corporations are kind of running the world. And we've we've now got um, this terrible separation between the state that used to kind of, you know, develop over thousands of years, literally, to kind of protect us and look after us. And then, you know, all a long time, there was private enterprise that was kind of small, but it became enormous. In fact, many private enterprises today are much larger economically than than most countries, to be honest with you. Mm. Huge company. Microsoft currently worth $1.4 trillion, which is more than the GDP of the vast majority of, of, of countries. So the real question is, what's the right relationship between these enormous corporations and governments and how can the how can they collaborate how can they together solve problems like climate change and solve problems like inequality and just a thought you know no one works no one in working in any company or corporation wants climate change maybe they want to sell fossil fuels if that's if they're an oil company or something but i mean nobody really wants climate change in a sense nobody really wants inequality um, but we've set up systems in the wrong way we, we you know we, we've we've got climate change that's, that's coming if we don't change the way we reduce emissions and 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 we've got terrible inequalities that are actually bad for corporations even you know uh, as wealth concentrates nobody's got any money and, and the business system gets unstuck so i think we're ready for just a big redesign of the way corporations and governments work together in society. And, and I think that's that's the theme for our conversation. So, Christiana, you managed to bring all the world's governments together. How can you s- sort of come to a final settlement between all governments and all corporations to ensure humanity <laughs> is happy forever? Well, I thought that was your job, Paul Dickinson. That's right. What he did was he, you should have been a politician, Paul. You took the question, you reframed it, you provided some context and you asked Christiane. And then I turned it over to Christiane. Whereas you have spent, you have spent your life answering that question. So I'm like sitting here on the edge of my chair waiting for the answer to that Okay, well, I'll give you the answer then. Okay, if you want. Um, One of our wonderful advisors said, what gets measured gets managed. Mm. And I think that the, the thing is, if you think a company, there was this, this, notion of shareholder primacy uh, that if, if, if companies are just there to make money for shareholders you can get a bit lost but hang on but let me if, pause one moment i don't want to stop your flow isn't that the law they have to respond to shareholders first above <laughs> ah, everybody yes. else you said i was a deep thinker didn't you well do i know <laughs> off by heart judge putnam's 1830 ruling in harvard versus amory that is the basis of all fiduciary capitalism yes i do okay listeners just just it'll be over soon listeners just bear <laughs> with us <laughs> the, the, the basis of fiduciary law says that the in the fiduciary the investor, you know, if I invest on behalf of somebody else, I should invest in the best interests, in your best interests, with due regard to both the safety of the capital and the return. Now, that, the, the, the beautifully crafted law doesn't say what best interest means, and that's mm. why it's lasted so well. So, for example, let's imagine that we've got big, strong governments who are doing a jolly good job of solving all our problems, and all I want to do is have lots of money to buy a swimming pool or something. Well, then the best interest could be described as, as you know, m- m- the most money for me. But let's say we've got all kinds of problems from runaway climate change, we've got slave labor, we've got terrible inequalities, and the world's going to be kind of destroyed, and it's going to ruin life for my children and absolutely ruin life for my grandchildren. It is not in my best interests in law for that to happen. So what you said when it was the law, as you were describing fiduciary duty, that legal duty of investors as a, as a financial principle, but it's not, it's a legal principle. But it's a legal principle to whom? Who is, is fiduciary duty there spelled with a small F or with a capital F? 
Well, I don't quite know what that means, but that's never stopped me from speaking more on the subject. Look, I think that the the, the critical person in the system... So true. <laughs> my family motto is often wrong, but never in doubt. Now, look, the, what you need to recognise is there is someone who controls the whole system, okay? And that's the citizen, ultimately. You know, we vote with our money. We we vote when we buy, you know, one product or service. We're voting with our money for, for, the, for the providers of that. And, and when we invest our money, we're also voting. You know, I don't know anyone really. People talk a little bit about ethical investment or something. Nobody really knows how they invest their money. And people need to look into that and come to the heart of it because all these systems, you know, you can have these kind of dinner party conversations where it's, oh, the system's out of control, the system's out of control. But it's us who are negligent in our oversight of that system. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reel us back in here a little because this is fascinating, but I think we need to stay focused on the thing we're aiming at, right? Which is, is it the case that coming through the COVID pandemic when there has been no tolerance for price gouging and for corporations taking advantage of this moment, is it the case that actually we are seeing a return to those companies that serve a multitude of stakeholders, employees, society, supply chain, rather than just their shareholders, has their day come? And does it look like they are now going to do better than those companies that only serve their shareholders? Christiana, what do you think? Well, I'll, I'll give a stab of an answer, but then I'm going to have a quiz question for both of you, okay? okay. So just get ready for that. So the first stab of the answer is um, there is, of course, mounting literature that companies that have a focus on environmental, social, and governance issues, acronym ESG, are actually outperforming those that don't have that on, um, on the market, and especially seen now during COVID, but even before. Yeah. And so if, if that is stakeholder capitalism, then yes, the answer is the day has come. Uh, not out of a moral reason, which is also there, or I should say not only out of a moral reason, but actually being rewarded by the market for their triple bottom line and for taking a much broader view than only profits um, and, uh, and, and dividend payments to their shareholders. So in, in a sense, yes, there is mounting evidence that that is now so. However, here comes my trick question to both of you. Just last week, BP announced that it was writing off $17.5 billion from the value of its assets because it is cutting its long-term oil and gas price forecast, and it is canceling several of their long-term projects. Why? Well, because they are recognizing that the COVID crisis is definitely going to change transport um, patterns and, um, and travel patterns. And very interestingly, not only are they looking at less travel, both air and, um, and on land, but they're actually also identifying that this is going to be a shift away from fossil fuels. So now the question to the two of you is, is the fact that they are recognizing the shift in the energy market is that because they are, are they writing off these assets as a protection to their shareholders, in which case they would still be in shareholder primacy? 
or are they doing it because they are tiptoeing into stakeholder, uh, stakeholder capitalism, and they are recognizing that they could actually have a huge responsibility in um, addressing climate change. I have a very good answer, but we can see if Tom can, you know, flutter about and see if he can get there somewhere. <laughs> I'm so glad I asked the questions so that I don't have to answer it. I, I will give you a quick answer and then Paul will give you a longer, uh, and I'm sure much better. Why answer. did you say longer? You don't know how long and is my answer going to be? <laughs> and I said better. I don't think that it's stakeholder. I think it's still shareholder primacy. And the reason I say that is because their share price didn't budge when they made the announcement. So I think they knew that it was already priced in by their investors. The investors knew that this was the reality and they were just taking a step that their investors already understood. So that's why the share price didn't budge. So they were they were continuing along the path of shareholder primacy, in my view. But, but, but sorry, let me just push you on that, Tom. That, that doesn't negate that they might perhaps, under certain conditions, uh, with a new CEO, that they might actually be starting to understand that they have a role to play in the energy transition, which, as I said before, tiptoes into broader responsibility. That's true. There, it's not mutually exclusive. It's not right? mutually exclusive. So I think that it serves that purpose. I mean, that you know, introduce a hundred dollar carbon price. That's very impressive. So I think that that's maybe a step more towards that. Um, so I think both could be happening. You're right. That's a little ungenerous the way I phrased it. Hmm. Oh. Well, you know, that's uh, that's a six out of ten answer, Tom. I think you did really, you, know, you, did, you did very well for you, you know. Uh, for you. Based, okay, so, based on what you were expecting. Um, do you know what? I, I was at a seminar, I think, 20 years ago or a little bit more, and somebody said BP uh, doing this Beyond Petroleum thing. So it was BP again. And somebody said, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, they're doing all this stuff, but do they really mean it? Do they really? And I heard you both talk about they. It's quite interesting. Hmm. BP, BP is they, right? It's a new chief executive, you point out. Chief executive, very important person. There's a board of directors there as well. A BP is also, you know, 100,000 employees or more. BP is also a certificate of incorporation saying that its, it's objective is to um, return, uh, to make profitable activity in business. A BP is a whole bunch of reserves, as we discussed, recently downgraded. It's tens of thousands of petrol stations. It's millions, tens of millions, possibly hundreds of millions of customers. Uh, it's, 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 it's also its investors. BP is like a really complicated uh, construct that's changing all the time, moving through time. It's kind of contested. So I just want to give that slightly oblique and bizarre answer that yes there is something about a heart or a soul or a brain or uh, of a corporation that is is deeply contested Christiana, your question was a very brilliant question you know do you know why are they doing it and and, and my question is my my counter question is what are they but my kind of specific observation is in terms of writing down these assets, I think it was wonderful we got a chance to talk to the uh, chief executive or the chair of Orsted, the oil company that kind of got rid of its, 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 its fossil assets and had actually transitioned quite successfully. And I think part of getting rid of its assets was part of its transition. So um, I'm not really giving any answer at all other than to say it is more complicated <laughs> and we should try and recognize all these different um, – contests for the kind of soul of the corporation and, and you you said tom earlier in your question you said is it the time of of the stakeholder corporation i'd say that's up to us you know you don't just sit there and, and watch history happen you have to make it that's true but also um 
you know, as someone once said, there is a tide in the affairs of humanity and taken at the flood, it leads on to fortune. So the question is whether this is the moment of the flood. I hope so. Christiana? Well, my, my question is, how on earth could it not be? <laughs> <laughs> what a great answer. What a great answer. Thank you for coming back, Christiana. Don't go away again. We were getting all confused. And then there was that suddenly that kind of great n- magnetic north. My compass is reset. I know exactly where I'm going. Yeah, I mean, honestly, right? Just look around us. How on earth could we still dilly-dally in totally obsolete logic that it has led us to be on the precipice of disaster? I mean, come on. No, that's no, such a good answer. I'm going to ask you a follow-up question, Christiana. How did we get all confused and on the precipice of disaster? What, what, what caused that? Uh, extraction mentality. And what's an extraction mentality? That we extract, can... consume, dump, and don't think about yeah. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. This linear mentality. We can extract as much as we want from anything, from anywhere, from anybody, from any you know society, from any population, from any forest, from any land, soil, water, whatever. Uh, just go extract, use irresponsibly without any efficiency. Um, and then dump it. Was there an expectation that the government was going to be able to sort of step in and make sure that there were rules to the game and we only extracted from responsible places? And then did government melt away or is it is, is not really about government? Well, I mean, that's too general. Yeah, it's too general a question to answer. Um, of course, you will not want to hear the Costa Rican uh, government. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, I was interested. Could you tell us a little bit about how this works in Costa Rica? Because the... <laughs> It would appear that essentially using we the soft the power, to every rule. using the soft power of the outrage and optimism broadcast, which is kind of like formerly the role of Voice of America or whatever, we're going to essentially <laughs> project. We're going to project Voice of Costa Rica. So, can you please, for policymakers around the world who may be listening to our broadcast, what should the governments of the world do to follow your lead? Well, I don't think it's that difficult, right? It really is to change that mentality, that extract, which I call a linear mentality because it's all in one, one, in one direction, to a circular. No, no, but let me be serious. In Costa Rica, what have you done to, to achieve that? I mean, what, what, have you got laws that assist in this? So, Paul, an answer to that question could take a long time, but I actually have an alternative suggestion. Why don't we invite, as a future guest on this podcast, the current Minister of Environment and Energy of Costa Rica, who's just been made the new CEO of the Global Environment Facility. And I think he might be able to give us a really interesting look at what Costa Rica is doing, but more importantly, and from a bigger picture, what his view is of the Global Environment Facility um, possibilities as we enter into the decisive decade. What do you think about that? Makes brilliant, good perfect sense. Let's do it, 100%. Thank okay. you. So I, I think this has been a really interesting... I mean, I, I find this whole concept of sort of the emergence of, of stakeholder capitalism, I realise that's kind of a jingoistic term. It basically means that, you know, we are entering a period in which corporations are much more realising that they can't just solve their shareholders. They also need to think about the environment, think about their employees, think about society, and those that do are rewarded, right? And that actually end up doing better. And I think there's lots of evidence that is now building in that direction. I think that's where we're coming down in this conversation. And there's really no one who we could have brought into this podcast who knows mm-hmm. more about this and that's has true. better experience than Paul Pullman. 
Paul was the chief executive of Unilever for 10 years. Um, he is credited with an enormous number of innovations at that company. Um, he abolished quarterly reporting, which is an amazing thing for a chief executive to do. Um, he said to investors, if you don't meet our values, don't invest in the company. He was a genuine leader on climate change with their sustainable living plan. He has played an outsized role on the global stage in terms of the influence of business as the chair of WBCSD and now as the chair of the International Chamber of Commerce. Christiana, I know you are close friends with Paul. Anything you want to say before we we play the tape? No, I think we should play the interview because... Um... Paul Paul is one of those people uh, who totally stands very, very tall in his own shoes and speaks totally for himself. So quite wonderful to be able to chat with him. Okay, here's Paul Palmer. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. Um, I, I, we want to talk to you about um, private sector response to COVID. But before we go into that, um, I thought it would be appropriate to make a public disclosure of what was truly the secret to the adoption of the Paris Agreement. Mm, yep. And um, and that was many people, you know, think that it was the brilliant work of the negotiators and so many heads of state who came and, you know, all of that uh, was helpful and certainly the support from private sector and investors, all of that was helpful. But there was one piece that was absolutely critical um, that has to do with you. And uh, so, Paul, you were the, at that time, while we were working toward the Paris Agreement, you were the CEO of Unilever that produces um, most of the products that we all use. But the one most important product that it produces uh, under your uh, under your trademark is PG Tips. In, in Christiana's opinion, it is. Yeah, in Christiana's opinion, we the know, most important product. We kept her alive. Yes, exactly. exactly. And, and, and you uh, early on realized that I was completely addicted to PG Tips. So... Here is the real story of the Paris Agreement. I arrive in Paris in my hotel room a week before the um, conference starts because we all have to be there a week ahead. And there's this huge box in my hotel room. And I'm thinking, why did they send my papers here? It would have been much more helpful if they had sent the papers straight to the office because now I have to figure out how to transport it from here to the office, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I unpack and then I go, okay, well, let me see which papers are here. I open the box and there's this huge industrial size box <laughs> of PG tips <laughs> sent by you. And it says, dear Christiana, I hope you and your team survive Paris. Well, I tell you, no one has been as happy as my entire team because up until then, Paul, I was pretty stingy because it was difficult to find PG tips in Germany. And so I was pretty stingy about sharing my PG tips. But when I had that industrial box, I sent out a message to the entire 500, you know, strong team at the secretariat and said, 
PG tips available for everyone. And it actually <laughs> kept us alive and awake and in a good mood um, throughout a whole two weeks. And uh, and that is the secret to the Paris Agreement. So well, you are public kind, gratitude but, uh, to you. I was wrong on my note by saying that you would survive. You actually succeeded, which is a much higher <laughs> order than surviving. So I'm, I'm glad it's linked to the brand. But I was actually even happier with having Ben and Jerry's there. They ran a mm, wonderful oh, advertising, yeah. which yes. said, uh, if you remember, when it's melted, it's ruined. That's and right. I thought yes. that got to the point. One degree <laughs> makes yes, a difference. It was, yeah. so, it, was, it was a great, great campaign. No, Ben and Jerry's, any, yeah. Uh, Anytime it got too hot, I took people there. But, but you know, if I were <laughs> yeah. addicted to Ben & Jerry's, I would weigh 50 pounds more than I do. So I'm glad I didn't get addicted to Ben & Jerry's. <laughs> you picked the right choice. <laughs> and I have to say, with the PG tips, my memory, Christiana, is you became extremely generous for maybe a week and then the supply started going down and then the old stingy approach seemed to come back in. And the, and, <laughs> and the tea bags were rather held back up. <laughs> Prioritization. Prioritization. Exactly. There's a yeah, business yeah, process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll send a new box. Ah, <laughs> thank you. But Paul, um, fast forwarding now to where we are, uh, much has happened since the Paris Agreement, and much has happened actually in the past uh, in the past two months. The world has literally turned on its head, and we've been uh, delighted and honored to have on this podcast many public sector figures and thought leaders who have shared with us their insights about uh, what is going on now, but in particular, their thoughts about how how to build back better from a public uh, sector perspective. And we're delighted that you have joined us to complement that from a private sector perspective, um, because not only were you the CEO of Unilever, but you are now representing uh, hundreds of companies in uh, with your many different hats that you have. And so I hope that we assume correctly that you're in conversation with many of these CEOs and are getting the best um, the best sense of uh, of where they are. So of course, many of them are struggling just to keep their companies alive, certainly small and medium. Uh, enterprises, the larger ones, and I would be interested in your opinion about that, the larger ones are uh, obviously advocating for financial support from the public sector in order to bring their operations back on board. Um, but I would be interested in, in, your, in your take about the dynamic there between keeping jobs, which is so critical, keeping jobs um, and keeping the company alive and how that dynamic is different in small and medium enterprises um, as contrasted to the larger um, companies ju just to start with and then we'll get into other topics. Yeah, I think what uh, everybody is obviously surprised by the uh, speed of the crisis, but also the depths of the crisis. This is probably the biggest uh, challenge that any business person has dealt with in their lives. And none of them have been, frankly, prepared for it. Mm. And it's been made more difficult because of the global nature of the challenge that also has affected uh, many of the supply chains that businesses deal with, the relationships with governments, the contracts with the citizens of this world. So I think it has brought to the foreground really the need for uh, successful business leaders to really uh, run a more and broader multi-stakeholder model 
to survive in, in a challenge like this. And companies that actually have taken that broader perspective uh, that have always taken care of their employees or their value chain, have a sound financial position and not engaged in simply share buybacks or special dividends or enormous uh, bonuses. Uh, these companies tend to do better in this crisis, not surprisingly. So it's a mixed picture. You will have, I would say, about the uh, 50, 60% of the private sector that has gone beyond the call of duty to be part of this uh, and, and save lives first and foremost, and then uh, protect livelihoods, and they've gone beyond the call of duty. Uh, but then there are others, unfortunately, that are increasingly being called out that see this as an opportunity to continue their shareholder primacy. Uh, and it's not appreciated. Uh, when uh, banks do short selling and, and put pressure on already companies that are being stressed or where co companies go ahead still with uh, with uh, dividend payments or executive bonuses or when there is price gouging or any other form of of misbehaving, it's pretty quickly called out. And that is a good thing of all of this. Whilst companies that go beyond their uh, call of duty, you might call it, it might become the norm in the future, but that go beyond their call of duty has have actually seen their businesses being rewarded. But it is tough. It is, it is tough out there and the CEOs have to make tough choices. And even the bigger companies that you refer to if you're in the airline industry or tourist or travel or many of the retail uh, like fashion, etc., uh, yeah, you can support your employees or your value chain up to a extent to a certain uh, time period, but that is also rapidly coming to an end. And that is why you see this crisis probably leading to one of the biggest levels of unemployment we've ever seen. And whilst the old people might have been killed by um, by the COVID uh, uh, crisis, unfortunately, the young people will be killed by the, the unemployment levels that are going to happen. And that is obviously one of the main concerns now for all of us as we move forward. Mm. So, uh, and Paul, you know, I've been accused before of being uh, too complimentary about some of our guests, but actually you, you know that I work in sustainable business and you have been for probably a decade and certainly in the last five years celebrated as the absolute uh, uh, sort of central thinker on sustainability, embodying that at Unilever. It's impossible not to go to a conference where they're hoping you will speak. In all seriousness, um, you, you know, you, you got that position because you found a way to find a role for corporation in society, and you, you became something of a role model. My question is 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 is, is, uh, is a question. Is that about making more money for shareholders, the strategy, or is that really the wrong question? How did you, as, as an individual, as a human with your responsibilities, how did you find the uh, right balance uh, between all your different stakeholders? Well, I've always believed that uh, the role of business is to make this world a little bit better than they found it. And if we have too many businesses around, or any business for that matter, that would have a negative impact on society, then why would we keep these businesses around? So I've always felt that shareholder return, which is obviously needed because they provide capital and risk that needs a certain return, is a result of what we do, but not an objective. And that's why the Friedman dogma of shareholder primacy was such a sad concept. 
I've, when I came to Unilever, I said right away, we're going to focus on our consumers, our customers that help us get there, our employees, our communities. And by doing that very well, our shareholders will be rewarded. It's a result of what we do. And as a result of that, it goes even further than the statement of the business roundtable in the US, which puts everybody at par. But it's an encouraging statement from where they came from. And we've not been disappointed over the 10 years that I had the honor of leading a great company like Unilever. We've had a 300% shareholder return and we've grown well above the uh, the levels of the uh, industry on average. So um, what we have been able to show is that this multi-stakeholder longer term model actually makes a lot of sense uh, for the shareholders as well. And not surprising, the bulk of the shareholders are institutional investors that invest your or my pension funds. And they want to have returns 15, 20, 25 years from now when we retire. And not only to ensure that we have a good retirement, but that we also have a world that we can live in. So the objectives of longer term and a sustainable business model go very much hand in hand. But then just a, a, a tiny follow-up question. I mean, we, we we could talk a lot about the, how your business became more sustainable, but thinking about those two um, groups, the, the, the shareholders and the customers, did you have to spend extra time and energy communicating with them? Was marketing uh, to investors even or talking to them, was, was the way you were marketing and communicating to your customers an important part of the journey? Well, the first thing, and I think I have a lot of lessons where I could be be better, but the first thing is you have to get your employees on board. So the first year we spent entirely explaining to our employees what a longer term business model meant. At that time, I had abolished uh, quarterly reporting. Uh, I had stopped giving guidance. Uh, which is really uh, uh, not very uh, fruitful in, in most circumstances. And, and the good thing, by the way, about coming out of this crisis now is that many companies don't know where they're going. There's so much uncertainty out there that they've stopped giving guidance. So I hope that that habit will not come back to the extent that we've seen it. But I had to prepare our own employees. We had to look at the uh, impact of all of our products, which then adds up to our company in total, in the total value chain. Because I've always felt that we cannot outsource uh, our our value chain and at the same time outsource our responsibilities. Mm. Many companies stay in the ECR space, a CSR space, corporate social responsibility, but you really have to move to the RSC space, responsible social corporations, yeah. which means that you take a responsibility of your total footprint. I've always felt that. But we had to measure the impact of our brands on water, on climate change, on waste, on plastics, etc. And then we had to get our system in-house, in order, in terms of capabilities and measurements, accountability systems. And only when we did that, which took us about a year, a year and a half, were we able to launch the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, which was a plan that we basically said, we're going to decouple our growth from environmental impact, and we're going to increase our overall social impact. So it dealt with the E and the S factors of the ESG that Christiana was referring to. What made it unique was that we put 50 targets out there. Already at that time, trust in business was low, and I believe that trust can only be built over time with transparency. Transparency builds trust, which is the basis of prosperity. And for that reason, we put out these 50 targets, and off we went. Where we did a lousy job, in the first five years, and I felt a lot of pressure, was by communicating that to our shareholder community. 
I had uh, made some statements that if you don't like us, then put your money somewhere else, or we don't really appreciate the hedge funds because your strategy doesn't align with what our company stands for. And I discovered it's easier to get rid of shareholders than to attract new ones. And at that time, there wasn't enough data around. There was a lot of skepticism, cynics, and uh, they were testing the model. And instead of disregarding them and, and saying, you know, we don't really uh, think you're important. You're a result of what we do. I probably should have spent in the beginning a little bit more time with them. But fortunately, we caught on and we improved our narrative. We helped others via organizations like the World Business Council to improve their narrative. And now we're 10, 12 years further and we obviously have a boatload full of evidence and hard facts why it makes sense, why companies that internalize a price of carbon or uh, report on their risks in their value chain have a better return, why companies that have internalized ESG uh, are more resilient in this crisis, uh, why investing in sustainable supply chains give you a, uh, or, or if you want to, a more balanced workforce or a more engaged workforce, why that gives you higher returns. So it's easier to sell now, but I should have done a little bit better job on that. Yeah. Paul, and Kent, so, so much of that is relevant for kind of the challenge that we have in front of us now, right, for rebuilding and how we come out of the coronavirus crisis, which is which we'd like to pivot to now and ask you about that. You've really been leading much of the thinking on it. I'm curious, though, to ask, I mean, if you look at the way business is meeting the coronavirus challenge right now, there is zero tolerance from amongst the public for the idea that companies would put profit over dealing with this crisis or would be seen to be profiting from this crisis. With climate change, we haven't quite gotten to that point yet. Do you think that there will be, um, just before we go to sort of recovery questions, a moment where it is as socially unacceptable to profit from creating the climate crisis as it is right now to profit from the coronavirus crisis? Oh, I think that the uh, pressures are increasingly apparent also to businesses. And it is not surprising that during this crisis now, many businesses are not only saying, help us spend now up to $10 trillion to just stabilize the global economy, but as we need to start to reignite the global economy, we need to do that in a different way than we came from. The reason why we are in this uh, situation is not forgotten on many. Yeah. The big lesson here is that you can't have healthy uh, people if uh, you have an unhealthy planet. The big lesson here is the links now between biodiversity, health and climate change. The big lessons here now again is that we should listen a little bit more to science and we've seen that with the COVID crisis and the importance on fact-based decisions. Mm -hmm. So yeah. many of these things that we are now going through is is not being lost on on the responsible CEOs in business. And frankly, when we talk about going back, going back was already a transition to a greener economy. What we're talking here about is, will this crisis help us accelerate? And look at what we need. We talked about the enormous need that we have for job creation, but we need also more secure jobs. We need better jobs. What this crisis has also shown is that it doesn't affect everybody equally. It's again the poor that pay the price. They live in more polluted areas and a direct link between air pollution and COVID uh, death has been established once more. Uh, they have uh, less resilience because they don't have the nutritional access or the health access that others have. So it has really exposed as well an underbelly of our society, which is this need to create a bigger social cohesion. So what you now see is as we start to 
have to put in again trillions of dollars to reignite this economy and to create livelihoods for all people, that more and more people are understanding that that needs to be done in a more sustainable and in a more equitable way. And fortunately, what we are seeing is that uh, not only the demand for consumers are there, 90% doesn't want to come back to where they came from, at least for now. But what we're also seeing is that it increasingly makes a lot more economic sense. Two-thirds yeah. of the world will have cheaper green energy now than fossil. Uh, the jobs that are being created in the green energy are four or five times higher than in the fossil industry. And interestingly, with the low price of oil, we still see some of these major commitments from companies like Shell and others to say, yeah, we need to decarbonize and we need to stick to the 2050 Paris Agreement, mm. which is basically net zero by 2050. What we now need to do is we see some courageous governments. We have about 100 governments in the world that already are aligned with the Paris Agreement. We see the European Green Deal. Uh, we see countries like France or Germany and now Boris Johnson in the UK speaking up and saying we need to accelerate the move to a greener transformation. But what we're missing is some of the bigger countries. Yeah. We're missing the Mexicos with uh, Obradors or the Bolsonaros in Brazil or the Putins in Russia or the, the Trumps in the United States or the Erdogans. And unfortunately, that's too big a, uh, a critical mass for us to to not worry about. So here, I believe very simply, my last sentence is that the private sector needs to step up individually and collectively to actually help de-risk the political process in those countries to move forward faster. And to some extent with the we are still in movement or the America pledge, you see that happening for 60% of the American economy right now. But uh, But it's the speed and scale that we need to concentrate on. So let's talk about that collectively um, that you mentioned there, Paul, because one one of the things that uh, that are really very concerning, and you've mentioned the uh, the countries, um, is this um, pull toward individual countries um, dealing with their crisis internally, um, as though the solution to the crisis would be something that you can build a wall around. And we know perfectly well that that is not the case. Um, we, we had uh, someone on our podcast recently that said, well, you know, I, I would love to see if France um, invents the, develops the vaccine to COVID. I would love to see the United States saying, no, 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 we're not going to take the French <laughs> vaccine. We're going to wait until the U.S. vaccine is developed, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So, so, you know, I mean, those, those walls that are being built are so unhelpful when it comes to the solution to this. But I would love to know what is the equivalent in the private sector? Um, yeah. Because is it hopeful thinking? Is it hopeful thinking to uh, to see a future in which the private sector is organized, let's say, across sectors: the cement sector, the um, the consumer goods sector, the um, you know, can can we see the well, the energy sector? Can we see private companies? coming together across national boundaries as sectors to actually engage in a building back better recovery that will make their situation and the global economy safer, more resilient and more healthy. Yeah, that's a very good question, uh, Christiana. And obviously, when we have a crisis like this, there is a certain level of inertia and there's also a... Uh, a pulling from the uh, old 
system, if you want to, to go back to where we came from. People will say, yeah, we need to restart the economy again, or wouldn't it be good if we go back to what we had a few months ago, because it's clearly significantly better than where we are now. But it is it is absolutely important that we keep the um, discussion around a redesign of the global economy. And what the redesign means is redesigning our healthcare systems, our food and land use systems, our energy systems, our social contract with society, moving the financial markets to be subservient again to the real economy. And these are major systems changes. And these systems changes can only happen with an incredible level of cooperation. I've moved away from saying it's the fault of the governments or the private sector this, or I wish civil society would be doing more here or there. I mean, these are challenges that require all of us. It was uh, Martin Luther King who said that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, uh, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all of us indirectly. And I think that's exactly what we are finding out now. Mm -hmm. With the health crisis that we just saw, we immediately saw 77 countries putting uh, export restrictions in place for this PPE, uh, uh, protective uh, material. Uh, and we see the same happening now in the food chain, where countries are now starting to put export barriers in place again in the food chain. As a chairman of the International Chamber of Commerce and John Denton running that, we're actively working with the G20 and other countries to uh, prevent that from happening. And even though they put it in their G20 declaration, the next day, again, you see countries putting export barriers in place. So it's not a pretty picture. And business understands that that is actually not good. Whilst undoubtedly, we need to look at some value chains, make some a little bit more agile, more local again. Uh, it was not really the value chains that fell short in this disaster. In fact, many of the stores are well stocked. There was a little bit of hoarding by consumers, but you cannot design a, a, a value chain. Where the value chain fell short was on the healthcare field. And frankly, it only fell short in those countries where the governments were relatively slow to react and created this enormous pressure in a system that was never designed for that. So we have to be very careful that we don't put the wrong medicine in this case against uh, against something. So we we hopefully re maintain a um, uh, a level of sanity when the U.S. clearly has shown a, a more <laughs> unilateral um, uh, direction. When Europe is searching for itself, which is a problem, and when China, when China, with the exception of some of the links around the Belt and Roads, are not willing to step up to the global plate. And what you see here is, I think, that business again fills that void. Going back to Paris, we had the low carbon technology platforms at that time, which we called Ferry Fancy, but it was basically 11 industry streams that you helped design where we got 1,800 CEOs to be in Paris and advocate that these industry streams could uh, decarbonize. And then we got uh, the high ambition groups, which in each sector now has companies, from be it cement or be it steel or others, that actually have made a commitment to get to net zero. And that we need to now accelerate. There's no question that you need to do it at an industry level to me to uh, create that competition. And that's the essence of why I created Imagine. So, so here's the thing, Paul. You, you perfectly uh, tee up, I think, what it has to be, unfortunately, because of time, our final question. But, um, you know, the Paris Agreement was an enormous success of uh, the United Nations. And you appeared to be, in a sense, representing 
the United Corporations. Um, many of the world's largest economies are corporations, as you know. Um, to what degree should there be a, a United Corporations organization to help uh, them collaborate to achieve similar goals to the United Nations? Well, we have the International Chamber of Commerce that uh, I chair and represents 48 million companies across the world. And we've changed instead of just mindlessly, may I say, advocating free trade. We say trade that works for everybody. We say now as one of the major streams, make climate change everybody's business. So we've changed the agenda there quite rapidly. And the same with the UN Global Compact. The 10 principles of the UN Global Compact are as valid now as what they were when Kofi Annan started it 20 years ago. And that is another 12,000 companies. We have with the WEF now brought together a thousand companies in the COVID pandemic action platform. So we have global organizations that represent businesses that have increasingly come together. And these organizations are also working with governments in this world or with civil society. They're obviously not elected, so they have to do it in partnership. And by that partnership, they're all the better for it. So I think the structure there is working. But we do need to get to another question if there is more time next time, which is what does this new Bretton Woods system look like? Yeah. We have a system of global governance that was designed in 1944 and hasn't been adjusted whilst the world has moved on. Whilst every company was would have had 10, 15 new updates in their strategies, we are stuck with a system of global governance that clearly is broken. And here again, that is one of the reasons why the ICC is so involved in the WTO to redesign this global trading system, why we are working so actively with the WHO, why we have observer status in the UN uh, and, and work with them because it has to happen in these partnerships and we need to celebrate these partnerships. We are first and foremost citizens of planet Earth and we have a connection to each other that this crisis has shown is far stronger than the wedges that other people are trying to drive between us. Mm. So um, Paul, Paul announced the last question, but I'm going to sneak one more question in. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, it, it seems pretty clear that um, in order to come out of where we are, companies are going to have to resort to pretty deep innovation because what was there before uh, it has proven to just not work and not be resilient enough to the impacts that we are having. So in that reaching out for innovation, how much space is there slash how much intention, which is different than space, how much intention can be brought to deliberately innovating in pursuit of the SDGs or in pursuit of ESG or from our perspective, in pursuit of carbon efficiency? How much can that be done? I am I'm horrified by the thought that we would just put all the bricks back where they were before and hence condemn ourselves to never being able to reach the SDGs, the climate target, nothing. How much re true reconstruction, redesigning, how much intentional redesigning with innovation, with a very different north um, are you already seeing among corporate leaders? Yeah, so there is a, uh, it's absolutely, as what you are saying, it is a uh, true north because it's, um, 
as the crisis has probably shown to us, is as uh, Viktor Frankl said, life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by a lack of meaning and purpose. And mm. I think increasingly, you see the companies that have that strong meaning and purpose are able to not only rally their employees to move forward, but also the innovations. Yesterday, I got a question, in this crisis, will we cut down on the investments in innovations? Undoubtedly, some companies will go the cost-cutting route, like we saw in the financial crisis 10 years ago. But overwhelmingly, this is fertile ground to develop new things um, and, and new ways to make this a more inclusive and sustainable society. And the companies that are well on their way to do this are already getting rewarded. In the financial markets, you see ESG companies that are classified like that doing financially significantly better. You get the oil sector has suffered even now during the crisis in their share price, whilst the green energy sector has continued to move forward. The bond market has actually, the green bond market has actually accelerated. So what is the opportunity? The opportunity is enormous. We need to create more jobs at a time when more companies are probably going to less employees and be more efficient. Governments need to look at more jobs. These jobs need to be more resilient, they need to be more inclusive, and they need to be giving us a healthier environment to live in. Well, nothing better than accelerating the conversion to green energy, nothing better than going into reforestation uh, or, or working on, on uh, 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 reversing degraded land, nothing better than retrofitting, uh, retrofitting buildings or offices, nothing better in cities like Paris and, and some other cities are now doing, installing bike lanes and, and water walk paths. These are all major employment opportunities where we redesign at the same time our food and land systems, where we redesign our infrastructure, where we redesign the way we get energy. And that's very motivating uh, for the companies that get it, for the employees that work there. And I believe once more that those will be the companies mm. that, uh, that will do well moving forward. What is the only precondition needed for that? If we truly want to get to the levels that are required, we need the governments with us because ultimately mm. you need these frameworks, these rules, these laws, these regulations to get there. So it has to be a very inclusive and a very democratic process. Mm. And that's once more what we're trying to do with Imagine. We've now started with the uh, fashion industry and we have a big call tomorrow with 28 CEOs in the food and land use. And they're coming with some very big commitments, how collectively we can get to regenerative agriculture Culture, how collectively we can get to the Paris agreements. How can we get out of single-use plastics? How can we ensure that we have a value chain in agriculture that works for the poor farmer as much as it works for the end producer? These are fundamental questions that we have never faced. And bringing these CEOs together, we make them more courageous and we drive that to a higher common platform, hopefully at a speed that is significantly higher than what we've done before. So we're enthusiastic about that. I think, uh, but you have to have hope and uh, a certain level of uh, positiveness, this optimism that you have uh, in your broadcast. And it has to be driven by a deep sense of despair that if we don't do this, that uh, the outrage, as you call it, that if we don't do this, we have failed humanity. And I simply don't want to be part of that. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, what an amazing message. We, we had one Jira Matai on the podcast a while ago. She talked about a courage deficit and there's none of that here in what you're talking about and everything you're doing <laughs> to galvanise that. Can I just ask one closing question? And I think knowing who you are and this message, I think I know the answer to this. But as you look at, you know, the long journey you've been on, where we are now coming out of this moment into the future, 
Do you feel more outraged or do you feel more optimistic? Courage comes from the French word cur, which is heart. So what it is all about is bringing the heart back. We have been running this world by little numbers that we boil down to the GDPs or whatever. We just need to simply bring humanity back in all we do. And if we bring humanity back in all we do, if that is what is called bringing courage back, then I'm obviously more optimistic than not. Uh, I've uh, discovered a long time ago that optimists and pessimists have the same life, but optimists have a happier life, and that's important to me as well. So I'll stay on the optimistic side. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. It's a great answer. Wonderful to see you. More important to see you as well and to see you all in good health. Be safe and hopefully soon in person. Indeed. Look forward to that. A big virtual hug. <laughs> Enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Paul. Bye-bye. So what a pleasure to get a chance to sit down with Paul. He's been such a leader for such a long time, had such an impact on our work and so many other things over the years. What do you guys leave that conversation with? I mean, I was really struck by some basic principles. He's, you know, he speaks in a very simple, clear way. He said the role of business is to make the world better than you find it. That's actually a very simple principle, very simply articulated. He talked about how Unilever had to get their head around measuring things, you know, impacts on climate change on water, which is close to my heart because that's something we pay a lot of attention to. Um, but then also I think uh, I was really struck by his uh, new role. You know, he moves out of an enormous company, Unilever. He goes to the International Chamber of Commerce. He's involved with many other organizations of businesses really thinking about redesigning food systems, medical systems, thinking about sectors. Um so, you know, an eye on, on industrial redesign, but also with a, with a you know, an attention to, to what, you know, how the world works. What he quoted Martin Luther King, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Just a really deep thinker and, and someone that I have enormous admiration for. Mm. Well, he is so eloquent, right? Um, and has always been. Uh, as I, I met him years ago as CEO of Unilever, but he has since taken on, I don't know how many hats. Mm. Uh, and it basically sits at the center of so many different private sector and, and business um, associations or groupings. And it's actually quite wonderful because my sense is that he is aligning um on so many different levels and with so many different arms that he's reaching into, he really is aligning business, at least the enlightened business, onto, as we said at the beginning, to stakeholder capitalism. Uh, and it's quite refreshing. And on that note, my dear friends, I recently um, looked at a survey that I think also Tom saw from Fortune that uh, surveys 500 CEOs about the effect that uh, COVID is having on their companies and how they're looking into the future. And I was amazed that a whopping 48% have said that the crisis is actually going to accelerate their move into stakeholder capitalism. You, literally using that term, literally using that. And I was also quite um interested in two other facts that came out of that survey. One is that three quarters of them have said that the crisis is going to accelerate technological transformation. 
that's really interesting because we have actually yeah. been betting that a lot of the uh, of of the resurgence from the crisis is going to be innovation from our perspective of course carbon efficiency innovation but i'm sure it won't be limited to that but the fact that they see that this hit is actually the opportunity to innovate technologically and in many other respects i think is a very interesting response to the fact that uh, they have all taken huge hits in their income, in their, um, in, 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 for sure, in their market value, et cetera. And the way that they're responding is actually with, um, with ambition and looking to the top of the mountain as they are down at the valley. And the other thing that I thought was very interesting, which resonates with the uh, stakeholder capitalism that we were talking about in the beginning is what is the top concern of these CEOs? Keeping their employees safe. How interesting. Mm. Keeping their employees safe, mm. meaning they are really aware of the fact that it is the brains that work with them that are the true value of their companies and that they want and have made extraordinary efforts to keep these people employed, even if they have. Uh, cut down on 10 or 15 or 20 percent of uh, of time invested and payroll, but that made a huge effort to keep them employed and hence keep them loyal to the company. And of course, all of them uh, making sure that the employees and their families are safe. So, you know, to the question that we had in the beginning, are we at that point of accelerating shareholder capitalism, I think the uh, the answer is a resounding yes. Yeah, that's that. I know that that survey was so interesting, wasn't it? I think the other one that um, is slightly ancillary to what you just said, but more than half said that they will never return to normal business travel. Yeah. That this is a, a, a fundamental change point. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it really does feel like a real tipping point moment. And I mean, you know, we, I felt I learned so many things from Paul and, and and what a resource for the world to have someone like him who's really been through that and is now prepared to reflect so honestly on what went well and what didn't go well. You know, he talked about challenging his shareholders, losing shareholders and then trying to find other ones. And, you know, he's very honest in his kind of reflections of all of that, which really makes that just so valuable. I mean, I was kind of shocked to discover, I suppose this is many people would know this, how much of the global economy is small businesses. I mean, he said 95% of the global economy is small businesses. And now as the chair of the ICC, he's kind of thinking about how do they make this transition as well. But I, I, I thought it was a great conversation. And I agree with you, Christiana, that data, the conversation with him really feels like this moment of a refreshed transformation for capitalism and the role that these corporations play in it. And we've got to get this right, right? This is an opening that we're not going to get very often to reimagine the role of the corporation in society. Yeah. But, but, but I think, Tom, that you've put your finger, you know, into the wound. Because the wound, I think, you know, before we get all raptured here and, and, and celebrating already this transformation, the difficulty is these, this survey that, you know, is actually good news overall is top companies, right? These are the largest yeah. companies. The, the difficulty here is what's happening to small and medium companies first in this crisis, they're getting much, much more hit, much more deeply hit. They're not able to keep their people employed, ne not necessarily safe either. 
Um, and they have so much less flexibility to be able to make this transition over to uh, to ESG or to to shareholder capital is much more difficult for them. And yet, as he says, it's the whopping majority. Right. So that's you know that that's the difficulty. Yes, we need front runners, and the big companies are front runners, and Paul is the front runner of the front runners. Um, but what happens with everybody who is behind? Yeah. Uh, great questions. Um, I, you know, I wasn't exaggerating, and, and you both know this, that uh, Paul Polman has been the kind of keynote speaker at every yeah. conference about responsible and sustainable business globally for the last exactly. 10 years. Uh, what, did he, what did he do is he embraced it company-wide. He said himself he got his employees involved. But I think there is a message, you know, if, if anybody wants to, uh, anybody wants to be a, a leader in responsible business, it's kind of an I'm going to call an open goal. I mean, there are some other people who've come forward with great statements, but I think, you know, society is looking for that leadership from companies now uh, as, you know, alongside governments. And just one final thing, I don't want to let it go, is is that discussion at the end about we need a new kind of Bretton Woods system, perhaps one that does find a right relationship with corporations, yeah. I, I think is fascinating and investors, you know, a new kind of architecture. And of course, Paul Palman warned us, you know, uh, businesses are not elected, so they don't have that kind of mandate. But in a sense, they do exist. You know, they're accountable. Public companies are accountable to their shareholders, and every company is accountable to its customers. We need to kind of weave together a new kind of uh, uh, architecture, I guess, for the for the governance of the way we produce and consume. If we get that right, uh, we may well be able to solve climate change and a whole bunch of other problems. Amen. All right. From your lips to corporate God's ears. <laughs> Aww. If there is one, yeah. Right. So this has been great. So nice to have you back, Christiana. What a great episode to start off with. Thank you so much to Paul Polman for joining us this week. As we said at the beginning, we have a live show coming up this Wednesday, 5 p.m. UK time, midday Eastern on Wednesday. You can go to our website, globaloptimism.com, to find the details. We will be going live with filmmaker Richard Curtis. Uh, we'll be talking about in, about his his work and his experience, as well as the role of the investor and the role they play in society. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll have some live yeah, music. Yeah, no, no. It's actually, it's, it's an opportunity to kind of make the conversation we've just been having part of your life. So please listen go. in. Please listen in. Uh, it's going to be fun. So register, join us, and we will be putting that episode out as a podcast next week. So you'll still get to hear it, even if you can't join us on Wednesday. But thanks for being here this week. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. So there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell and executive produced by Marina Mancilia-Germann, who, like Cristiana, is also back from holiday. Marina, welcome back. It's good to have you. Thank you to our team, Katie Bradford, Sarah Law, Sophie McDonald, Laura Richardson, Sharon Johnson, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. A special thanks this week to Elise Comrie, Zena Elmaruki, Fiona Fiong, Jenna Salter, and Kelly Packman. And of course, thank you to our special guest, Paul Pullman. So as you're thinking about what podcasts to listen to next, or you're wrapping up doing the dishes or gardening, be
be sure to take this moment and register for our live event with screenwriter, producer, and director Richard Curtis. It's happening this Wednesday, July 1st, and where you register is globaloptimism.com events. But you don't have to remember that because I've just put a link in the show notes below. You can click it. It'll take you right there. Register. It's free. It's going to be amazing. We'll see you there. And of course, we're discussing amazing things on social media about the climate, and we want you to be part of the conversation. Come join us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Global Optimism. And if you love the podcast, subscribe and please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Links to our social media are also available below. You can click them right there. Okay, next week, our live episode with Richard Curtis. We'll see you then.